All right, you recording now? Okay, we are recording. All right, I'll do the outro for the last episode. Okay. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Pretty good? Yeah. All right, and I'll do the intro for this smash. Thank you for joining us on Longest War. I'm your host, Nick Grimes, and on this episode, we are joined by Academy Award-nominated director and New York Times bestselling author, Sebastian Younger. Please leave your message for 4623-7309. Hey, Sebastian, it's Nick. We're getting ready to record the podcast. We'll try you back again here in a second. 6-3-3-7-0-9. Yeah, 646-63-7309. Yeah. No, no, no. 3709. What? 370. Somebody just got a weird message from us, and they're going to call back, and it's going to <laughs> ring in while we're on the phone with them. <laughs> Hey, Sebastian, it's Nick. Uh, hey there, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm here with Jake Volker. Great. Jake, do you want to say hello? Hey, Sebastian, how are you, man? Hey, Jake, I'm good. Okay, so we'll get started. You've covered Afghanistan extensively over the years. Was your first experience traveling to Afghanistan in 96? Yeah, I, I first went to, uh, to Afghanistan in 1996. I went to Peshawar, Pakistan, and it was at a time when there was a, a price on the head of Americans uh, in Pakistan. And we went across the border and into uh, Jalalabad and then to Kabul. And it was right when the Taliban were taking over. Um, in fact, we were stayed at the same hotel as the Taliban delegation in Jalalabad to negotiate the surrender of the city. Uh, we sort of eyed each other across the dining room floor. <laughs> you know, they were, we were right outside of Kabul. And we were shot at from a Taliban position when we were driving near the front lines uh, in, Eastern, in, the, in the western part of Kabul. But, yeah, I was just fascinated by Afghanistan, by the Arab world. It was all that was very, very appealing to me. And I really, I was completely enamored of it, actually. And, and uh, so I went over, in 96 was my first chance to go over there. Probably the hardest thing about it was I just got an unbelievably bad case of dysentery that sort of went, lingered in my body for months. So, uh, that I mean, oddly, like, there was... <laughs> <laughs> the greatest hardship I suffered over there was intestinal. That's the worst kind. Um, how did that assignment come about? Uh, I pitched an article to Men's Journal, a magazine Men's Journal, about the Al-Qaeda training camps in Tor- the Tora Bora Mountains outside Jalalabad, uh, and they went for it. And so, so you did that, you came back, uh, and you wrote Perfect Storm shortly after that, right? I wrote it before that, but then the book came out after that. Yeah, in fact, I finished the manuscript. It was a, it was a year late. I really wanted to be a war reporter, so I finished the manuscript for Perfect Storm. I was like a year late. I turned it in. You know, I took it to my publisher. It was This is before the internet, and, and I took it physically to my publisher, put it on his desk, took the subway home, packed my bags, and went to Afghanistan the next day. Well, it's a pretty big change of pace. Um, so after that, uh, so Perfect Storm comes out, does really well. The movie comes out. That's amazing. Uh, then you go back to Afghanistan in 2001, right? What were you? What was that return trip for? No, no, I was, uh, I mean, I was all over West Africa and civil wars in West Africa. I was in Kosovo, I was Sierra Leone uh, in 2000, which is an incredibly terrifying experience, uh, Liberia in 2003. But in 2000 as well, I was with Massoud with the Northern Alliance uh, in northern Afghanistan and Barakshan. 
as you know, Ahmed Shah Massoud was the leader of the Northern Alliance. He was completely outgunned and outnumbered, probably by a factor of three to one. The Taliban were backed by Pakistan. You know, they had an air force, they had MiGs, they had tanks, they had big artillery. Massoud was the guerrilla, you know, he was the guerrilla force. And so we were with him for a couple of months up there. And we had a very tough experience, actually. And um, so I came back from that to New York and wrote about wrote about him. He's an extraordinary figure. America owes him a lot, actually, uh, in staving off the Taliban as long as he did. And, of course, Massoud was assassinated two days before 9-11. It was part of the 9-11 plot. And then 9-11 happened. And, you know, I live in New York City, and um, I got back to Afghanistan as fast as I could. And I was with Massoud's commanders that I'd known from the year before, Smilah Khan and some others, when they um, pushed across the Shomali Plain and took uh, Kabul. So I was with them in 2001, I mean, I rode into Kabul in the back of a Northern Alliance pickup truck, you know, past a pile of dead bodies. I mean, it was, like, very intense. I mean, I was one of the first Western reporters into Kabul to see the celebration. I mean, and re- really, it was a celebration. I mean, I was getting hugged on the streets of Kabul by Afghans who, you know, would find out that I was American, and they'd come up and hug me and thank me for what our country did for in, in liberating them from the Taliban. It was extremely moving. How that changed. You know, you don't even think about that. Yeah, I mean, the Bush administration made a lot of mistakes, and they killed a lot of innocent people, and they did a lot of stupid stuff. But, you know, gradually the Afghans, I mean, they're op- the Afghans are optimists, you know, but, you know, it took it took some, their optimism took a lot of battering before they'd give it up, and eventually they did. Right. Well, so as a, so you were, you lived in New York on September 11th, uh, you know, so in October of 2001 is when 10th Mountain initially pushed into Afghanistan. Having so much experience there at the time, how did you see that? invasion playing out? Did you think we'd still be there, you know, 16 years later? Or do you think it'd be a quick, um, you know, limited action? Well, I, I mean, it would have been quick had we sent a real force there. You know, I mean, if we'd sent the kind of manpower and resources that we sent to Baghdad, if we sent that to Afghanistan, I mean, Afghanistan was the country that really wanted us. The, Iraqi, the Iraqis didn't, I don't think. Uh, I mean, I refused to cover Iraq because I thought it was such a wrong-minded war. But um, Afghanistan, I understood and I agreed with. And you know, in large part because that was the, the instability in the Afghanistan in Afghanistan was where Al Qaeda to take root and ultimately kill three thousand Americans. But also, they, I, I knew the Afghans wanted us; they wanted help, and I knew we'd be very well received. What didn't work for the Afghans, or for us, for that matter, is going in there with a light footprint and then moving on to Iraq. So, I, you know, I think had Afghanistan been the only war on the map for the United States, I think we would have been fine. The Afghans would have trusted it. They didn't trust 15,000 American soldiers to stabilize that place, nor should they have, which is what we left there in, in 2001, 2002. And we left, a, you know, we had a force of like 15,000 soldiers, 18,000. Uh, the Afghans knew that wasn't going to work. So, of course, they were reluctant to partner with us because they knew if this effort collapsed, they're, they're, they, the Taliban were going to cut all their heads off once they retook Kabul. So, you know, understandably, the, the Afghans were a little sort of cautious about how fast they allied with us. But also, because of our light footprint, we would buy off warlords. We basically pay them a lot of money and buy their loyalty so we wouldn't have to fight them or intimidate them with large troop numbers. The result was that we were literally paying money to Taliban commanders because we couldn't tell good from bad. So so we were paying huge amounts of money to these guys. They're completely violent, corrupt people, both Taliban and non-Taliban. And the the poor Afghans were watching this thinking, God, we're just getting screwed all over again. So... I, I, no, I didn't think we'd be here 16 years later because I didn't think the war would be that badly run. I, I was hugely optimistic about it, and it was really tragic to sort of watch this unfold. 
this is 2001 when you're there. Like, how much how much time did you spend in Afghanistan uh, post 9/11 before you went there for uh, to do Restrepo and and the the stuff for Vanity Fair? I spent two two months there in the fall of 01, uh, and and I you know I left out of Kabul uh, once Kabul had fallen, and that was a real thrill. And I, you know a lot of the reporters I knew figured there'd be some sort of mop up operations, but basically it was over. The Taliban had completely collapsed. The goodwill of the world was behind us. You know, Tal- uh, the Pakistan was sort of grudgingly accepting, you know, sort of the change of you know changes on the ground. It looked good. It looked like the war was really over and we'd done it. And, you know, I, I anticipated just a huge outpouring of aid and resources and technical expertise, you know, to go into that country. And, and you know, then I watch Iraq, t- Iraq t- take shape. I thought, oh, it's still going to work. You know, the Afghans really want us there. It's going to work. And by 2005, it clearly wasn't going to work. So I went back to Afghanistan this time for the first time in my life to cover American military forces on the ground. I grew up during Vietnam, during the Cold War. I never thought America would be in another protracted ground war. I just, like, I grew up in an era when that didn't seem conceivable. And so I was with uh, Battle Company, the 173rd, in Zabal province. I just was randomly placed with those guys. And I, I was just amazed by them. I did the two, uh, a one-week operation with them in the mountains of Zabal and was there for another couple of weeks. I was just amazed by those guys, really impressed by them. And I just thought, if they go back, if these guys... If this unit goes back to Afghanistan, I want to cover cover one platoon for a year of combat. If they go back to Iraq, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And at the last minute, like with a month to go, they were rerouted from Iraq to Afghanistan to the Korangal Valley, which I pictured as some sort of sleepy little, sleepy little place in the mountains. And, uh, I mean, I thought all the fighting was down in Helmand and, and Kandahar and all that. And I just thought it was going to be a really boring year. But I was like, all right, I'll check it out. And, you know, obviously it was it was anything but. Right. So when you get there to the Korangal for the first time, how long did it take you to realize that, you know, this was the Wild West? This was anything but a sleepy little resort town. Probably probably like within 30 seconds when you got off the helicopter. <laughs> Almost. I mean, I, first of all, I couldn't believe how remote and and rough the cop was. And, you know, it's not even Restrepo. Maybe the cop at that point was like, you know, it looked like a it looked like a fire base of what I imagined a fire base in Vietnam. You know, like, it looked really rough. And, we, and I was psyched. I mean, I didn't want some big base experience, right? I thought, oh, this is really interesting to see American soldiers in these conditions, with or without combat. It is really interesting. And then, um, you know, on our first patrol, we got hit. Really, it really sustained a really sustained firefight of about half an hour, right around dusk. And uh, we were behind the schoolhouse wall between Lukele and Alibad. And uh, we were taking fire from three sides. It was it was very intense. You know, tracers were going right by our heads. I mean, it was very very intense. And you know, I just thought, holy shit! Like I can't believe I'm in a firefight with American soldiers. I just again, as a Vietnam era child, I just never thought America would be engaged in this kind of war and again, right? And you know, I had my video camera and I and I shot everything and and I realized, wow, this is this is a very very different situation. It's going to be very intense. And you know, honestly, it's exactly what I was looking for. Hey, Sebastian, it's uh, it's Jake. So, you know, you talked a little bit earlier of, you know, how there was these huge resources that went to Iraq. You know, being out there in the Korngal during that time, you know, did you have any, you know, anger or thought process on how hard it was for us to get resources when all that was going on in Iraq as, you know, even not having the ability to heat our tents, you know, that kind of stuff, having all that 
I guess, uh, pressure on Iraq and, and not enough support in the corn gall. You know, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the guys, you know, they're, not, they're, they're smart. The guys I was with in the platoon, they're smart, they're smart guys, you know, and they, I mean, they knew, what, they knew the score. They knew what was going on, and they hated it. I don't know what they thought about the war in Iraq per se. I mean, some I think were skeptical about it. Some just were straight up, you know, like, do what you got to do. But they all realized that it was a huge drain on resources and, and particularly on air power. They all, they all realized that. You know, I mean, if, the, if America really wanted to control the Korngal Valley and it had some real strategic value, a company was really stretched thin. A battalion definitely could have done it, for sure, and taken way less casualties, I think, and... You know, I'm not a military person, but just from what I absorbed and understood when I was out there, you know, they just didn't they didn't have enough outposts on enough hilltops. I mean, they just there was no way to not get shot at all the time. And if that valley was super important, I don't know why they had so few people there. And if it wasn't so, you know, if it wasn't important enough to really have enough guys there, then why were they there at all? Like that was the part I didn't get. Like, all right, I get you. This is an important valley. Where is everybody? Why am I at a, at a, you know, with 10 men at some outpost? Like, uh, you know, what's going on? This is America. You know, like, where, where is everybody? I think it really puzzled everybody out there. Uh, I don't know if you saw it. I'm sure you did. There's a video on YouTube of once the Korngal was abandoned, uh, the Taliban fighters taking it over. You know, they're walking around with 50 cal, you know, Rambo style ammo that we had left behind. Did, did you have any thoughts if you've seen that and? Well, I, I mean, we pulled. I mean, we pulled out of the Korngal. We pulled out of Afghanistan, basically. So, I mean, that was the intent, anyway. So, I mean, everyone. I think everyone sort of understood. You're going to pull out of the whole country. You're going to start with those little finger valleys. You know, that said, the visuals are kind of poignant to see. The way I explain that to the citizenry that occasionally asks me that question, but in more outraged tones, you know, when I give talks and stuff, my understanding of it, I think it's fairly true. That I mean, the big project that was going on wasn't the Korngal Valley. The Korngal Valley didn't really matter per se, but it was a staging area for attacks on the Pesh River Valley, which actually was important, demographically important, economically important. And they were trying to pave the road into the Pesh and set up uh, you know, rule of law and influence of the Kabul government and schools and all that good stuff. I mean, really good stuff. And they just couldn't do it when, uh, when the Taliban kept attacking out of the Korngal. And so they put a cork in the bottle, basically, and it worked. I mean, after you know, when they did that, that really, the, the, the pest quieted down, and they got you know, they got their road paved, they got their gas stations put in. They, you know, they influenced that area very, very deeply. And once those projects were done, they pulled out. I mean, it, it, it kind of made sense, but when you just the raw numbers that fifty American, you know, almost fifty American servicemen were killed in a six-mile-long valley that we no longer hold, that's a tough one. For the American public, and it should be. I mean, that's a those are tough numbers. Sure, yeah. You mentioned it in um, in war. You, you know, like I don't remember what the exact number was, but it was X amount of uh, the SIG acts happening in Afghanistan were happening in the Korngal. And Jake looked up one of the combat action badge recommendations he had written for a soldier that was spent some time at Restrepo building that up. And over a course of eight months, he was in 152 firefights. Um, so I think a lot of people don't understand the significance of. Yeah, when you say the Pesh quieted down, like, yeah, it quieted down, but the Korngal got real noisy. <laughs> like, I mean, it was just such a, it was like, I mean, we were cracking jokes about it, you know, we, we, we can laugh a little bit about it now, but it's like, you know, hey, it's uh, okay, it's Monday. What, uh, what time am I going to get shot at today? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, for sure. I know. I know. And it was, it was amazingly kinetic. And 
And, you know, after my report came out, all the journalists wanted to go there because they, you know, they wanted to get their ticket punched, right? You know, so suddenly it turned into some weird theme park. I mean, I, some very strange things happened in the Korangal, you know, uh, militarily and sort of culturally. It was, it was interesting. Well, like Sebastian, we would go back down to Camp Blessing. And as, you know, like my engineers would be coming back there to go stage wood to get up there, there'd be 10 journalists with cameras waiting for us to get off of Blackhawk so they could tell people that they have a story from the Korangal. It was just insane. Oh, my God. Yep. That's incredible. The press can be so lame sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So you'd be sitting I down really... there like all your guys want to do is go grab that shower that they haven't had in 30 days and, you know, something hot from the chow hall. And you got these guys with microphones in their faces. It was it was tough. Yeah. Well, let me, and the command wouldn't let him in there. They they were they stuck on my blessing. Yeah, I think that was it. Like, um, I, I don't know, you know, how they were chosen, but I, I have a feeling that there was kind of an informal screening process on, you know, maybe how tough or rough around the edges you were if you could go hang out at the corn gall. And but people also didn't realize that you know, food and water up there was such a real scarce thing that you know to feed another person at the corn gall really took away from a guy that was fighting. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, let me let me ask you this, Sebastian. So you you would spend about a month at a time at the Corn Gall, is that correct? It, it would depend on how fast I could get in and out. I mean, I, my my trips and Tim's trips were usually about a month. Tim spent a couple months. His first trip out there shooting video was October '07, and he broke his leg up on the Abascar, and so he was out of it for the next six months. So when he got back there, he did like two straight months there, and that was the longest trip that either of us took. What was it like um, when you would come home for a while? Like, how hard was it to get out of that mindset of like, how did you, how did you like mentally get back to living in America between trips? I mean, I've been going back and forth to war zone, you know, since I was thirty or my early thirties. So, I, like, I'm I'm used to that sort of weird transition where it's a huge relief to be home, but it's also sort of weirdly disappointing, you know. And you feel like you're sort of missing out on life because you're because you're back home. I, I don't know. It's just it's a strange thing. It's like, why, you know, why do I, why does it feel like life is happening in this place where death is happening? Like, why, why have I paired my feeling of being, of, of living my life? Why have I paired it with the experience of witnessing and avoiding death? I mean, it was just, it, 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 I never quite understood it, but it certainly is a real reaction. And so I, I, when I'd gotten used to that transition, what I, would, what I was not used to, honestly, was worrying about the people that were left behind. I mean, you know, I'd make friends occasionally in Africa or wherever I'd been, in Afghanistan, wherever I'd been, you know, with the native population. But I'd never been with sort of my own people, if you will, you know, for weeks at a time in in a situation like Restrepo, and real bonds are created. I mean, really powerful bonds happen in those circumstances. And so what was new to me was to come home and to spend half my time worrying about how everyone was doing out there and, and kind of feeling like, even though I'm not a soldier, and I know it sounds absurd, but that I was somehow shirking my duty or something by being home. And that, and, and, and I really wanted to be back there. I never wanted to leave. It was very, it was very complicated, but it was complicated because I was worried about those guys. And I just thought, shit, if something happens to one of them, particularly one of the guys I was really close to, I'm going to feel guilty my, the whole rest of my life and not even for a, a, a rational reason that I could articulate. But, I, I, it, it, but that's how it felt. And that, that was very, very hard. How did that affect like your, um, or if it did at marriage. all, like, your personal relationship, yeah, your marriage? Like, was that, cause is that a weird thing? Like, did your wife know that you kind of wanted to go back? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was weird. I mean, and I, you know, I wasn't, I mean, I, I was, um, I was married, but that marriage ended. 
for a variety of reasons, but, but part of the reason, I think, was the changing that I did in that experience in the Korangal. And, you know, it affected me in negative ways, but I also changed in very positive ways. And I just sort of out, in some ways, outgrow the marriage. Uh, I mean, I worry just, I, that's the wrong way to put it. it. I became a very different person than the person I was when I was married. And those changes came about in part because of my experience, not in combat, my experience in the platoon. You know, my experience of being connected to those guys that intensely for a year shifted something in me in, in a really in a complex way. And I, I matured a lot. I changed a lot. And I think it made my wife at the time realize that my emotional center of gravity had now shifted and was partly outside of the marriage. It was partly outside of the country. And I think she sort of sensed that. And I sensed it. I mean, it definitely was a change. And I think it was very hard. On, I, I mean, understandably, you know, like I'm, I'm not I'm criticizing her. I really, you know, but I, it was hard on her. It was really hard on her. It was hard on the marriage. Sure. So bringing up that point of, uh, you know, you felt a responsibility to these guys. Uh, yeah, I know when Warrior talk about that you and Tim had some, you know, medical training. So if, you know, there was a mass cas, at least you could do something. But as far as being a journalist, like how do you, how do you resolve that ethical dilemma between being a spectator covering a story and then like an active participant uh, as well, if needed to be? Well, I, you know, I mean, the journalistic ethics are pretty precise. Like, I mean, you can always render aid, medical aid. You can always give food. You can give shelter. I mean, that's just a human, you know, human behaviors that should be encouraged in to the journalists and everybody else. What you don't want to do is roll around with a firearm and pretend you're a soldier when you're actually a journalist. Uh, it's bad for journalism and it's bad for the soldiers. <laughs> you know, like, it's just a bad idea. But that said, you know, the sister com- one of the sister companies, Chosen Company, was, you know, they, they were ambushed. They had a 360-degree ambush on, I can't remember the date, November something of 07. And they took 100% casualties. Like, every every guy had a bullet in them. And I think they had six KIA. And I, I said to Tim, I was like, listen, that easily could have been Battle Company, and we easily could have, we could easily be in a situation like that. We should know how to fire all these weapons and and how to use the, the medical kits. Like we should just know how to do that, because at that point it's a matter of survival, and journalism has nothing to do with anything. You're just human beings trying to survive, so you know bad circumstances. Sure. How much contact do you still have with those guys? Do you remain pretty close with a lot of them? Not a lot of them. I occasionally hear from some of them. I was closer to some than others when we were out there. The guy that I stayed close to and and extremely close to is Brendan O'Byrne. He was my closest friend out there, and that just continued. He had a lot of problems when he came home, some because of the Korangal and some just because he had a complicated life and he was working through the the issues. But, uh, yeah, he, I mean, he and I are best friends. We talk to each other practically every day, I would say, or almost every day. He lives near me, and we, we do a lot of stuff together. So, so I'm mostly very close to him, but, you know, I hear from some of those other guys from time to time. You know, the years go by and lives change and, you know, whatever. O'Byrne was in one of your more recent films, too, The um, the Last Patrol? The Last Patrol. Are you guys, uh, you guys are still working on that walk, right? How far along are you so far? Well, we could have, you know, obviously we finished shooting for the movie, but we just keep going back out there and pushing, <laughs> pushing west on these railroad lines. We actually, we're filling in a 100-mile gap that, that we had to, that happened during the shooting. We had to sort of... It, it, those guys were on a limited time frame, so we had to finish shooting, and I wanted to get to Western Pennsylvania. So there was, we left the kind of gap in the middle, and so we're, Brendan and I are filling that in. We're just about we're just about sewn that up, and then we're going to 
push into um, Ohio and keep going. For the folks that haven't seen the film, uh, you guys get hassled by like Amtrak security guards uh, quite often. It, is it harder now? Like they know what's up. Like are they in the lookout for these two dudes? <laughs> the Amtrak police were looking for us. The the um, I don't know who it was, but someone had a helicopter looking for us. I mean, we were basically every people that are listening. We decided to walk from Washington D.C. to Philly to Pittsburgh along the railroad lines without you know tents and all that stuff. We were sleeping under bridges. We had a tarp in case it rained, but you know we got our water out of creeks and made fires in the woods and we were basically vagrants we're sort of high-speed vagrants you know we walked 10 15 20 miles a day and we moved through ghettos and farms and suburbs and you know whatever i mean right straight through everything right along the railroad lines we we, we really encountered america in, in a very interesting way Hey, Sebastian, so, you know, you've done so much for the post 9-11 veteran. You know, I think that your name is is synonymous with, you know, kind of the person that maybe told the story right for the first time, Uh, you know, with some of your films and and your books and, you know, all those things. You know, when I kind of announced that I was going to, you know, have the opportunity to be on a podcast with you, you know, people who don't know my story were like, dude, you're that's the guy, you know? So what do you, so I want to say thank you so much, you know, just first off for, you know, kind of doing what you, what you've done. What do you think is missing, you know, in the post nine 11 for, for the post nine 11 veteran, you know, there's a bunch of charities out there doing a lot of good things. There's some great movies, you know, there's great books that are out there now. Um, anything missing? that uh, you think maybe a, like a, a younger entrepreneur or younger guy that's, you know, wants to do something really awesome for the veterans community might be able to bite off? I mean, honestly, well, first of all, there's so many different kinds of veterans. So, you know, the 10% of the military that was in, was in a combat unit and was in combat are going to have different emotional consequences and, and therefore different needs from someone in a logistics unit that maybe got popped once in a while to someone who has just fixed himself on a rear base and never, you know, maybe heard a mortar come in once, you know, like, I mean, so first of all, I think what America needs to do is stop sort of putting all veterans into sort of one category and imagining the sort of Hollywood combat movie reality that comes to mind, you know, for all of them. I mean, one of the things that veterans have to struggle with, you know, that they're very heroes and they're veterans and all that, but little does the public know that most of them didn't shoot their weapon. So what do you do with that guilt? It's, those guys feel like they actually didn't do enough. So that's a whole different emotional problem from someone who was really seriously traumatized and, you know, wished he'd seen a little less action. Like, so, so, I mean, the fir- I think the first thing the country has to do, this isn't for an entrepreneur, this is for the nation. You know, the first thing the country has to do is understand that it's, it's not a betrayal of our good feelings, our, our, our need to honor veterans to actually make distinct distinctions in different kinds of service. And then some kinds of service are frankly more heroic than others, and that's just what war is. And I, and I feel it would help everybody if we were sort of more, if we were all more honest about that. It, it would take some of the sort of guilt um, that some veterans, I know, and I know them, I've talked to those guys. I mean, guys come up to me and say, listen, I feel so guilty. I didn't do shit over there except prepare trucks. Like, everyone keeps calling me a hero. What can I do about that? Like, it's, it's such a heartbreaking question, you know. So that's the first thing that needs to happen. And secondly, you know, I think what's missing for veterans is what's missing for all of us is a sense of community, a sense of collective action that supports our nation, supports our towns, our neighborhoods. Like America is in its affluence and in its sort of like gadget heavy, internet focused new reality, it's losing touch with its own sense of identity. 
uh, you see this, these cracks appearing in the, in the political world, you know, racially, economically. I mean, there's huge cracks appearing in the country, and I think it's unsettling everybody. And even neighborhoods don't, you know, people live in neighborhoods where they don't really know their neighbors that well. And that, that's affecting everybody. Veterans feel it more crucially, more dangerously, more poignant, poignantly because they had, they've experienced the alternative. Like they were in a platoon. If, even if it was a rear base, I mean, they were functioning in a platoon of people they got very close to, certainly in a combat unit is even more intense. So they, they experienced that kind of tribal life. I mean, this sort of community existence that humans evolved for and, and, you know, we lived that way for hundreds of thousands of years is what we're wired for. Soldiers experience it. And then they come back to this country and all of a sudden they're confronted with the thing that's sort of afflicting all of us, which is this really demoralizing sense of alienation and unconnectedness that's set in in modern society and in this country. And, and, and that, I, I don't know how to heal that, but for me, like, that's at the heart of the issue, and, and it's not going to be fixed. Unfortunately, it's not going to be fixed by some brilliant new startup, you know, dedicated to the veterans. I mean, that's that can help sort of around the edges, but there's a real fundamental sort of societal problem. On that topic, and, you know, in Tribe, you talk about some of the things that uh, make it difficult for vets to make the transition back. You know, you talk about meaningful employment, um, which post-9-11 veterans don't have to the degree that, you know, World War II veterans did. But you also hint on this idea of this us versus them mentality of like American politics. And I think it's fair to say that things have gotten way worse since you wrote this. How is this something that can be addressed? Because it, it is a major issue. It's a, um, you know, it's a neighbor against neighbor who had a Trump sign, who had a Clinton sign. Um, it's so divided. Do, do you see this actually getting better anytime soon? I think it's the um, really angry populism that sort of carried Donald Trump into office it came from somewhere, right? These are all good people. Those feelings come from something. It, it, and I think Trump sort of capitalized on them. And he's a really, you know, I mean, I didn't, I, to be honest, I didn't vote for the man, but he's a really brilliant politician. I mean, he definitely identified that thing that ails America and capitalized on it. When I don't, and there's some of his ideas I actually, I think are really good, really substantial and, and worth, you know, worth pursuing. But what I don't like is that he sort of would identify parts of the American populace, identify President Obama, identify Democrats as somehow the enemy. Like they somehow aren't fully part of this country or shouldn't be. And it tapped into a very fearful, angry place that in the population that any population has somewhere in there, and it tapped into that and exploited it. And that, to me, was really antithetical to what this country is striving to be. You know, honestly, I think that really, on an unconscious level, even for vets who voted for Trump, I think that kind of rhetoric, that kind of constant feeding of the sort of suspicion and, and hatred of the other side, I think that is really unsettling to people. I think it makes it feel like you're a kid in a marriage and the parents are fighting and you don't know if you're gonna, they're going to stay, you know, mom and dad are going to stay together. And I think a lot of people in this country feel like, shit, we don't know if this country's going to make it. Like, are we going to just crack apart? And honestly, I think a lot of politicians are guilty of this on both the left and the right. But I think Donald Trump made that crack worse. I think he exploited it. And I hope he can heal it because this is not the country. I, I, most people don't want to live in a country like that. Sure, sure. That's fair. I, I don't want to get, a, you know, deep down a rabbit hole about Trump. But, you know, you're a journalist and I have to ask you this question. 
What has been your take on his pretty relentless assault on journalism and the media, particularly having, you know, lost close friend doing this job of journalism, you know, photojournalism and reporting? My sense of him is that when he feels when he feels accused of something that he can't defend himself for or, or when he's asked hard questions that he doesn't quite know how to answer, his reaction is to punch back. And that's a great tactic if you're in the ring. I mean, if you're literally fighting somebody, like if you're under attack, hit them back. But that's not really what presidents are supposed to do. And I think, you know, he's lived his life in a kind of bubble where he set all the terms. He was a very powerful, wealthy man who runs his own business, his own empire. And if anyone questioned him, they were fired, right? So he, his whole life, he's never had the experience of having someone ask him a question that he had to answer. I don't think he likes it. And so I think all of this stuff of sort of maligning the press, yeah, it's a tactic. I'm not sure he really believes it. I don't, I don't think he does believe it. I think it's just, a t- you know, everything he does seems to be about presenting himself in a strong and bold way. And his travel ban, I, I, you know, I'm not really, con- I'm not entirely convinced that he thinks this will literally keep America safer, but it definitely will make him look strong and decisive. And what I see in him is someone who keeps using policy to come across as a strong and decisive leader, rather than actually focusing on policy that will work. So, the long answer to your question, but I think that's what he was doing by accusing the media of being, you know, whatever fake, whatever that means. Fake seems to be any any fact that he doesn't want to actually answer to. Uh, that seems to be the definition of fake. <laughs> right. And you know. At the end of the day, reality catches up with everyone, and we're all going to have to answer to everything. So, uh, you know, like, he got off to a tough start. A lot of it was his own doing for the good of the country and for his own psychological health. I hope he, I hope he turns it around and starts getting stuff done in a more collaborative way. He needs to bring in the Democrats and actually, like, synthesize some kind of national policy that, that reflects the needs and hopes of everybody. He, you know, he hasn't, he's not quite there yet. Right. Uh, so I got two more questions for you. So when the Perk Storm first came out, some, you know, held you as the, the next Ernest Hemingway, you know, and then you've spent all this time doing all this combat journalism, amongst other things. And now you're kind of, you know, Sebastian Younger is said in the same breath as like Ernie Pyle, Joe Galloway, guys like that. Is it fair to say that you are better known for your works on war, in Afghanistan in particular, than your other stuff? Uh, you know, my interests are continually shifting. So when I wrote Perfect Storm, I was really interested in that. When I started going off to war, I was really interested in that. When I wrote my book, Death in Belmont, about this cold case, you know, murder case from 1963, like, that was, it totally obsessed me. Tribe is a really different thing. You know, it's about community. It's about sort of communal life and, and our sort of tribal origins. And again, it just fascinated me. And so I, I write books about things that interest me. And, and that's my primary motivation for writing them. The public has a certain image of me it sort of there's a lag time and it sort of follows follows along behind that. I don't think a lot about it. I don't think a lot about how the public perceives me. Like I, I mean, I just I mean, so I literally sometimes forget that I've written the books and made the movies that I have and that people see me like that. I mean, I just sort of forget. So I'm not thinking about it. So yeah, it doesn't really matter to me at the end of the day. <laughs> you know what people you know what people think of me. You know what kind of a journalist they think I am. I, you know connected to the perfect storm, that's fine. You know, war reporting, that's already obsolete in my life. That's already done. You know, I don't know what the next incarnation will be. So I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Okay, so final question. So I, I heard you 
maybe a year ago on Tim Ferriss' podcast, and you said uh, if you could recommend a book to anybody, it would be Sapiens by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Have you read Homo Deus? I, you know, I haven't. I just read the review in the New York Times today, and um, I think he's a really brilliant thinker, and the review, I felt, didn't quite um, do him justice, but but um, he's a really, really interesting original thinker, and I think I called Sapiens a a, um, a Bible for non-religious people. Like, it, you know, it, it's the book about the human race and the human race on the planet. Like, it's, it's incredible. So, I, I mean, it's like one of my favorite books. Yeah, I read it right after I read Tribe, and I remember it just kind of um, like reinforced a lot of the ideas that you talked about about these, you know, evolutionary desire for us to just, you know, be in these close knit groups, and we desire this, uh, you know, sense of belonging and the sense of needing. For anyone that's read Tribe and liked it, it's a it's a it's a great follow up to kind of get into a deeper dive of some of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. Um, yeah. I mean, I read. I remember if I read it before, or after I wrote Tribe. I think I read it before I wrote Tribe, and I think it made me realize I could go a little far out there, further out there in my theorizing than, than I, I usually go, you know? So, yeah, it's, it's an amazing book. Awesome. Jake, do you have anything else you want to... No, just thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for uh, spending some time with us, Sebastian. It uh, means the world to me, and, uh, you know, hey, telling people about that summer of 2007, uh, you know, has defined... You know, the way I've conversed with people uh, about my deployment experiences for the last, you know, 10 years. So uh, thank you. And uh, you have so much to be proud of. And I think that there's many other guys out there uh, that were with me during that time period that just kind of want to say thank you. And uh, we really appreciate it, man. Well, thank you for telling me that. I've, that really means a lot. And um, welcome home. <laughs> and uh, good luck to both of you guys. All right, thanks, Sebastian. I really appreciate you joining us today. And whenever you guys finish your talk and you come out to Pittsburgh, give us a ring, man. We'll stop by Voodoo Brewery here that Jake owns, and we'll have a couple drinks. That sounds great. All right, thanks, sounds Sebastian. Great. Thanks, thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, take care.